live from our studio in Babson Park, Massachusetts. It's the Fred Opie Show, where we unpack history to positively impact the future. I am Fred Opie, your host. Thanks for joining us live or listening to the podcast. The following is an excerpt of an art science talk on New England foodways held in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Leah Minas, a senior food editor at Boston Magazine, organized and hosted the event, which consisted of a panel discussion. I, Fred Opie, served on the panel along with Irene Lee, the chef and owner of May May, and Mark Sheehan, the chef and owner of Loyal Nine. These are both restaurants in the city of Cambridge, Massachusetts. Fred, I would love to start with you. Foodways gets into not only the cuisine itself, but it gets into food systems. So what, what are the, the means of production? Who's producing the food? Who is planting the food? Who's harvesting the food? Who's cleaning the food? Who's cooking the food? Who's cleaning up after the food? What are the recipes involved? Who creates the recipe? Who gets credit for the recipe? So it's, it's much more inclusive than just what's on the plate. I have been very interested in using sources from the WPA collection, which relates back to the period of the Great Depression. And one of the ways that uh, FDR, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, put people to, to work was to find writers and send them out to collect stories of American culture and history. And so there was a project called America Eats. And it was supposed to turn into a book. And it didn't turn into a book. But there's a reservoir of really great materials that are housed in the Library of Congress in uh, Washington, D.C. So I've used those, those sources for my first book. And when I moved to New England in 2010, I said, I, you know, I can't live here and just not act like this stuff exists. So I really became interested in New England. Let me, let me just say this to you, okay? I work at Babson College, a business school. This was my wife's job offer. And I came to be a good spouse to support. So I had... <laughs> I had no intentions being a New Yorker, no offense to anybody from New England, but I had no intentions of being here. I landed here and I decided to embed myself into those archival materials. So I became interested because I'm living here. Even more interested when my children began to say, Dad, we just won our first World Series. And I'm like, who's we? <laughs> so. You know, it became very clear that they saw themselves as natives of New England, and I thought it would be wise to dig into that. And I'm, I'm really glad I did. It's really cool information I've come across in those sources. Great. Um, and then a kind of cheesy question I pose to all of you ahead of time that I'll start with you for is, do you have a favorite New England dish or one, as you've been doing your research, that you just find most interesting or that taught you something you didn't know? One? <laughs> it's like asking me which of my two children do I like the most. You can, you can do two. There was a chef at Babson College who was there for many years, and he created or came up with this clam chowder recipe that was served in the cafeteria for many decades, and he died long before I got there. But people kept saying to me, oh, you, you work at Babson, you need to know about, you know, Chef, uh, his name is Richard, I can't remember his last name. I did the documentary on him, so if you want to interest in, you can find it on my podcast. The clam chowder is terrific and it's his recipe that's been passed on from chef to chef to chef and the chef who actually continued it was a person who grew up in the town of Wellesley and he started there working just cleaning dishes but he learned everything he could from this guy 
and that recipe continues. So that's one of my favorite. I don't think I've had a better clam chowder than at Babson College. Secondly, I'd say the uh, lobster roll, which is very distinctive of this area. You know you're in New England when you travel to a Walgreens in Maine and there's lobsters in a fish tank <laughs> for sale. So those are the two that I'd say. There's, there are many more, but those are the two that come to mind. I've seen a rest stop in Maine that has lo- live lobsters in tanks as well, um, which was... Mark, uh, how would you describe Royal Lines Restaurant? Yeah, what, what is that exactly? Um, we've, we've always referred to it as East Coast Revival. We always felt that calling it New England was too broad, and we are focusing on the coast, but revival is the important word. We're trying to take uh, dishes that were sort of forgotten about, mm. ingredients, uh, seasoning methods, cooking methods, and bring them back, like represent them. You know, the effort is that it's very much, like it's, it's based in this region uh, in terms of the ingredients that are currently available. It's the food that, in theory, was cooked here. Uh, and what are a couple examples of, of dishes? So like our take on uh, Aristook Savory Supper, we've done it three different ways, where it was a, a dish from northern Maine where it was just potatoes, onions, and salt pork. We've done one where it was cooked like a gratin with an egg on top of it. Um, we've done another one where it was basically like a, a pomzana, where we like shingled potatoes in a mold and put grated potatoes with charcuterie scrap and, and onions in the center and steamed it mm. and fried it. Peas porridge, which is like a gruel. It's just a yellow split pea. Puree normally served hot. You'd usually put like uh, ham hocks in it. We serve it cold with like shellfish on top. So it's not something that you would find in a book, but it's true to the cooking method and the uh, usage. And what has drawn you to this subject matter in the first place? Initially, it was because I, I, in studying history in college, I, I knew I wanted to cook, so I was attracted to food um, classes where I could sort of find a way to veer things back towards food. And, there are a lot of early American history classes I was taking where kind of the foodways, the movement of goods and, and who was moving those goods and, you know, how a, a choice on which sweetener to use was a political choice was something that was really interesting to me. But in doing that research, I was finding references to recipes and to dishes that, like, I, I'd lived here my whole life and I didn't know existed. Continuing to, to do that research, I realized why pursue a style of food that I had no connection to when I was connected to this area, but there was so much more for me to find out. Your turn to, to say your favorite New England dish. A dish called mutton duck, kind of a larger like ceremonial roast, and it was basically you took a whole mutton shoulder with the leg attached, you would debone it, you would stuff it with like a farce that contained oysters and, and breadcrumbs and ground mutton meat and, you know, heavily spiced, almost like medieval spicing, and then you would take the bone that you had taken out, like the, the paddle bone from the shoulder, stick it in the back as, as if it was the tail of a duck, and then twist <laughs> the arm uh, to present as if it was like the neck and head, oh and roast it, and then just carve it. I was um, waiting for you to say that the mutton was somehow going to go inside of a duck. No, no, it's literally <laughs> just a mutton that looks like a duck, but it was mutton duck. Uh, I have a hard time finding mutton, a party large enough to serve mutton duck to, and Really, that's that's the only thing holding me back. There are a bunch of us here. Great. And Irene, uh, can you talk a bit about what you do on a day-to-day basis at at Maymay, which I know encompasses... Maymay is our family's food truck and restaurant. Uh, Maymay means little sister in Chinese. It was our brother Andy's idea to open a food truck, and then um, his two Maymays forced him to name it after them. 
Now I'm the, the sole operator of our businesses. Every day is a little bit different. I definitely am kind of like a basement gremlin half the time. I hide in the basement. In addition to that, I just do basically support for all of the managers. I don't do a ton of like chefy stuff. You know, my job has really been about business operations more than anything recently. I also have the incredible opportunity to do panels like this. Getting to sort of represent what we're doing at Meme, um, not just in terms of the food, but also with the culture we're working on building, that's really, I think, what my job is about now. Maybe you can speak to them when you guys were starting the restaurant and you were thinking about, you know, we were talking about a, a creative Chinese-American menu. And what did that mean to you? And, and I know that you grew up in the Boston area, so how did that inform the type of food that you came up with for the menu? Yeah, so um, our food has always been really hard to explain to people. Um, creative Chinese-American uh, doesn't totally roll off the tongue, and it's definitely not authentic Chinese food. And so that's usually like the first disclaimer we have to put out there. There are tons of great, very authentic Chinese restaurants in Boston, and, and we love going there. But for us, I think the menu is more about what feels authentic to three Chinese-American kids who grew up in Boston. We ate uh, stir-fry and rice at home almost every night, and on the nights when we weren't eating that, we were eating any number of things um, that Boston had to offer. So we grew up, I think, with multicultural palates, and what we do at the restaurant, I think, is really an expression of that. A lot of the food is like a little weird or confusing, but we find that um, it tends to be delicious because it's made with really great ingredients. And there are a lot of nods to Chinese cuisine. And we also find that for a lot of Asian Americans who do come in, they recognize what we're doing with the food right away. Like it's what they were eating while they were growing up. The combination, I don't really use the word fusion because um, it sounds like somebody did it in a lab. You know, a combination of all the things that a Chinese American family might have in their fridge. And it might be um, scallion pancakes uh, with cheddar cheese on it or, um, you know, any number of things really. So Chinese food kind of through the lens of New England and obviously a, a big focus on ingredients too. And uh, your turn to answer your favorite New England dish. Well, I, I picked an ingredient, um, which could be a dish if you just drank it straight, which is um, maple syrup, I think is just a really fascinating piece of history origins with, uh, some would say, uh, American Indians, um, and then the settlers um, used as a sweetener and a form of currency, as Mark was saying. And then, of course, it also has a lot to do with our future, because as the climate changes, it's harder and harder to harvest maple syrup. Um, and so we're seeing maple production gradually march north. And at some point, it might march so far north that we don't really have too much of it at all. And when I was in high school, I spent a little bit of time living and working on a farm. And one of the things we did was carry buckets of sap through the woods, uh, wearing snowshoes, um, and boiling it down. So you have a gallon of sap, um, and it produces about two ounces of maple syrup. And something very magical about that process um, because you know it looks like water you fill your Nalgene with it and that's a delicious treat but when you get to transform it into something else that just I don't know is, is magic. Well that actually uh, is a perfect answer in terms of transitioning to my next question which is what it how do we even define New England cuisine at all what what is that exactly and I think foodways is, is a more apt term for it perhaps but when you think about what makes a food represent a sense of place, how much do the ingredients come into play? Uh, Mark's probably heard me ask him this like a million different times, but how are the ingredients involved? And then how much of it is like a dish construct? So, you know, talking about maple syrup, 
talking about clam chowder, those ingredients that make the clam chowder came from somewhere far from here, does that make that a less regional dish than a kale salad where the, the kale is local? All of those things can make up a cuisine. A cuisine is sort of the accumulative combination of ingredient choices that result in dishes, who you're trading with, how those ingredients start to arrive and interact with uh, what's already present and already in season. It's also a matter of the peoples who are living there and how they mesh together and, and start to produce dishes or make ingredient choices. And then it evolves over time. If you're to say that a dish defines a cuisine, it's, it's chicken or the egg kind of a thing, but I think you can't have a dish without raw ingredients, without a climate and terroir. Those are the type of things that determine what people want to eat. If it was very hot here, people probably don't want to eat a ton of butter. It's not hot here, it's cold. Pigs were the, the easiest way, you know, uh, you could put a pig in your backyard and raise it, therefore you could preserve it. So lard and, and salt pork started to become the lipid of choice. We have a lot of pasture land, so that results in you know dairy production, butter, cream, milk, things like that. So that starts to influence what your cuisine is because that's what's present. As people then come to the region, it's gonna change a little bit. If I could make it anywhere, then what what exactly would be the point of doing it here? Something about it has to make sense if we're here. The show will be right back. Visit our website at fredopi.com. Check out our podcast archive and review the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. You can find all my information on my uh, website, fredopi.com. There's a food blog. For those who don't know, I work as a food historian and there's a ton of really interesting content and recipes on there. You can see the link to my book page. You can see all six books that I've published in my most recent one. Start with your gift. The real deal about life and getting ready for life, it's there. If you are planning an event and you're looking for a guest speaker, let me know if you're interested in having me come to speak. I love coming and speaking. Welcome back to this edition of The Fred Opie Show. Mark mentioned um, ingredients to our. For me, the, the very basis of understanding regional cuisines and what would define something New England has to do with topography and geography. That, I mean, that's the essence, and it kind of goes back to what you're saying. If you, can't, if you can get the ingredients anywhere, then it's not going to be regional. So the fact that we are a place that is surrounded by water is very significant in how the food is made here what the food is. So I, I think you, you got to start there with what are your ingredients? I think about chef colleagues who increasingly are getting back to ingredients. If something is grown right, don't mess with it a whole lot. Just get it on the plate. And I think that also speaks to topography. I also listened to Mark talk about you know, the lipids, what's available here. His definition started with European introduced ingredients, cows, hogs. None of those things were here until the colonial period. So when I think of New England food, and I think often gets left out of the discussion, is the food that Native Americans made in this land and how that shapes so much of the food of New England. So you, you really can't talk about New England food without talking about the three sisters, you know, beans, squash, and corn.
Those are the three sisters of Native American cuisine. If you want to understand Native American food ways, it's those three. And if you think about New England food and you go into older recipes, you will see that they are throughout any menu. It's important to think about the introduction of European. Some of, some of these things are, are things that Europeans brought to New England, but there's also what was all already here and then the introductions of not just Europeans, but Europeans from all over Europe bringing different parts and techniques. So cooking techniques that are Native American, cooking techniques that are European, all those influence, I think, what we call New England food. And then how do you factor history in that as well? Because obviously I think Boston is so defined by its history and its historical restaurants and its historical recipes. And how do you think about how foodways maybe used to be versus how they are now? One thing that isn't necessarily acknowledged or understood with like the history of Boston food as we know it is that it, it's not necessarily accurate. It changed at a certain point in history, like what people were actually eating. <clears throat> what Fred was saying is like a, a great example of it in that Boston brown bread, referred to as Boston brown bread, originally was rye Indian or rye Indian bread, which didn't contain molasses. And it was something where wheat didn't grow well in New England. Cornmeal did. They learned how to grow corn, or European settlers learned how to grow corn. They imported wheat. They started planting wheat. Wheat grew well. They combined the two and mm -hmm. baked loaves. Eventually, post-Civil War, colonial revival period, in an effort to sort of, for a variety of different reasons, create a product that was New England or Boston, added a ton of molasses to it, steamed it like a pudding rather than baked referred to it as Boston brown bread. And it was something that at the time, it gained fame for being this luxury product. But in the rest of New England, it was being mocked as mm -hmm. like, look at these silly Boston, like Bostonians cooking this like garbage stuff that we feed it to our pigs, they won't eat it. So we have this vision of what the history of food has been in this, this area, but it's not necessarily accurate. And so it's like we oftentimes fall back on it you know, rely on it. It's like these are our like staple dishes, but they became our staple dish like the 1880s, 1890s. It wasn't what we were actually ever eating. There, you know, there's marketing involved, there's racism involved that sort of like created a lot of this food. So a lot of it is really caricatures of itself. Yeah, it's been perpetuated. I mean, at one point clam chowder was just clam chowder. It wasn't New England clam chowder. It eventually became New England clam chowder as a way to like push it. So there's a lot of those dishes that exist were things, Boston baked beans at one point were just beans and pork. And then it became Boston baked beans where they were cooked and gloppy. Someone was like, back in the, the 1860s, criticizing Boston baked beans because they said each bean should be treated as if they were a voter. And individually and respected in Boston, they just you know, let it all get muddled up. Now that's baked beans. I bring this up often as I'm teaching how does a cuisine change? There's three ways. Migration, who comes here, who leaves here. Number two, religious conversion, which will affect your diet, what you convert to, what you now will eat, now what you no longer will eat. And then three, marriage, who you marry. If you marry into a different ethnic group with different food ways, your diet will change. So if you think about the migration patterns of our region, Native Americans first, different Native Americans coming here. Then you get uh, the migration of, of people from Europe. Then you get the influence of 
people in the South and the Caribbean desiring to have cod to feed enslaved people. And they end up coming here in large numbers and start taking cod out in large numbers where it's not readily available. All these things. And then you have the importation of African people as enslaved people here in New England. And we haven't even talked about what happens when large numbers of, of Irish uh, immigrants come. All those things uh, shape our foodways. So just as Mark was saying, New England foodways, if you looked at it, say, in the 1500s, is very different from the 1700s to the 1800s. And that all has to do with those three things. How much does storytelling and the way that we write about these things have to do with how they're perceived by others? Or, or do you feel responsibility or pressure or anything to have stories coming through with the food that you're creating? I think for us, the, the story is, it's actually where the food comes from. And so there's, there's always a story. And it might be, this is what we ate around Lunar New Year at home. Or it might be, uh, you know, one of our cooks discovered this weird new vegetable that no one had ever tried before. And that's how it happened. But I think... Certainly, like internally, um, within our team at the restaurant and within our family, the, the stories that we tell ourselves, the narratives that we have around what the food is, I think that's sort of what's most important in a lot of ways. And I think that to some extent that does get picked up on by journalists or by the media, but I think that when we cook, we are creating some sort of art or product that is actually you know, reinforcing who we think we are. And I can definitely say that in uh, a family that has immigrants in it, cooking a certain way is all about being who you are or being where you came from. The story is really, for a lot of food, that's where it, that's where it starts. And is that something that you find when you're interacting with diners that they want to know about? It's in the background um, yeah. if they ask, and if they really want to know, they can now buy our cookbook. <laughs> <laughs> In terms of how we come up with ideas for dishes and how we choose ingredients, a lot of diners don't want more information, and that's okay. And then for diners who do want more information, you know, they want to know where every single thing came from and why did you choose to do it this way instead of that way. We, we want to be there for that, for sure. For a lot of folks, eating in restaurants is just, it's a lot of information, um, and there's a lot coming at you really fast. Uh, how much do you tell, tell the diner and how do you decide how to do that? I used to do dinners like on the side before we opened Wild Nine, where I could come out and describe literally every single dish, the story behind it, uh, the ingredients, the farm. Oftentimes, the farmers were sitting at the table with people. I remember one night listening to one of our servers trying to like get a guest to order chicken, encourage the chicken, because I in pre-mail had been telling them like we need to move more chicken. <laughs> so low, low price point for me. Like let's let's sell some chicken, right? Um, and I went on I, I went on this whole long spiel about like the historiosity of our chicken dish, and I just was standing at the pass and I could hear him at table seventy five saying, traditionally it's served with cream celery, so this is our version of cream celery where we've taken the cream out. And it's, a, it's a celery puree, and it normally had oysters, but and and you could just see the table's eyes glazing. Over. <laughs> like they didn't care. They just wanted either chicken or they were looking for pork. And, um, or maybe they were pescatarian. I don't know if he'd even gotten a dietary restriction. Um, and so we, we had to balance it. I mean, we have a, a, a specific style of dining you can do at the restaurant where you just put it in our hands. Uh, you don't know what's coming at you. And so we've sort of tried to gear some of the stories to that menu. 
because those are generally the people who are coming in looking for something a little bit more adventurous. I have a reference point for everything. Uh, some of it's esoteric, some of it's specific. If someone wants it, we can give it to them. Otherwise, like they can have a, a beer and some, you know, uh, a duck breast and, and leave hopefully happily. When we were we're sourcing this stuff, we're finding it, uh, care very passionately about it, and then try to get the story out there to tell people about it, to maybe, if not, uh, excite the city or the region or the nation about what we have here in this area, um, as well as just like what we're doing. And we don't get the response at a certain point. It was just sort of like, screw them, let's just cook nice food. It, try to have try to have people come in, have a good time, and we'll worry about you know, the hundred people who come in for dinner night. So And why is it that it there there is seems to be this like inherent lack of sex appeal tied to New England food, which is the problem, it's a perception problem, I guess, but we don't have an infrastructure here in town. We need to do a better job of appreciating New England food, documenting New England food, telling the stories of New England food. And I don't think we do we do that. And in, in uh, the South there's an organization called the Southern Foodways Alliance, run, run by a friend of mine, John T. Edge. And they've dedicated probably almost 25, 30 years of doing that. They have symposiums. They, they're bringing in scholars, chefs. That's the other thing, too, that when, when you talk about this, you've got to bring these multiple communities together. The producers, you know, the historians, sociologists, the, the chefs, all those people need to be involved. To me, there is a wealth of information that I see in the documents, but I haven't even touched on starting to do oral histories with local grandmothers. I mean, there's just a ton of stuff out there, but if you don't appreciate it, you start looking other, other places and start thinking that's more important. I think that's my take here. Kobe Bryant, the basketball player, recently retired, and people asked him in his last year of playing in the NBA, what are you going to do in retirement? And he was serious with the answer, I'm going to tell stories. And that's what he's doing now. He's got a podcast where he is telling stories. He's won awards for telling stories. If you want New England food to get the recognition, you got to dig up the stories and tell the stories. I, I mean, good teaching to me is good storytelling. How does that tie into, um, this may be something we discussed too, home cooking and things that come out of like the oral histories versus restaurants? Is it one's kind of needed... You know, is there too much pressure right now on the restaurants to be telling those stories you think in Boston? Or what does it take to get them? Is it a mix of restaurants and home cooking? Sometimes I think we, we try to become just too daggone complex. Just keep it simple. Yeah, I mean, that's my opinion. You know, I, I make stuff. I, I'm what I call a graduate school cook. What do I mean by that? When I was in graduate school, I was poor. That means poor, very poor. So I could cook by looking in the cabinet, seeing what was there, going to the grocery store, seeing what was reduced on price, and coming home and making a menu. And my wife is always amazed when she's, oh, there's nothing to eat in the house. And I go in the kitchen and do graduate school cooking. She's, wow, this is really good. It's just simple stuff. And, and most of the grandma food that we're talking about is what people were producing out of the poverty to make something taste good and feed their kids. Is that where a lot of the dishes that you've talked about, too, like, but are those coming more from a home cook reference point versus a, a restaurant reference? In the area we're looking at, it's hard to find restaurant recipes. As a restaurant cook, I'm, I'm more attracted to things that are adventurous. What really started exciting me was when I would read some cookbooks, like uh, Boston Cooking School cookbook, things that 
were geared toward teaching domestic servants how to cook in Boston so that they could go work for the wealthy. Cookbooks weren't geared towards people cooking at home. This is what one wants their life to be, so that's how we're presenting it in a cookbook. In making something of what I got today, as opposed to like opening up a cookbook that was expensive, I need to know how to read to actually learn how to do this. And Fred, I'm interested, what would the infrastructure look like to do this type of Foodways Alliance research organization that would be based here, you know, to do all the work that you're saying needs to be done? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Perhaps there's someone in the audience that wants to fund this, so I'll put it out there. I literally sat down in my journal and wrote an affirmation of what I want. I've never read this out loud. It's called the New England Foodway Alliance. I have the ideal space, sponsors, collaborators for the New England Foodways Alliance. We have more than enough endowed funding to document, study, and explore the diverse food cultures of a changing region and the paradigm to do so. New England Foodway Alliance gives voice to the people of the region and operates an academic institution that supports the collection of oral histories, images, and the production of audio and documentary films and podcasts. NEFA produces live events in which the food is sourced locally, regional chefs prepare it. We support the work of scholars, chefs, researching and writing about New England foodways. The first year we were open, I was at Copley Square Farmer's Market, and I was buying, you know, 14 bunches of hot rack turnips. And someone behind me in line just asked, like, what do you need that many turnips for? The restaurant, she asked me the name, I told her, and immediately she just, like, slapped me on the shoulder and said, I've been trying to find you. I'm the archivist for the Congregational Church wow. in Boston. I have uh, church picnic menus and recipes going back to the 1660s. I'd love if you want to come take a look. But I know a guy that can. Yeah. <laughs> and I if I had a resource like that where I yeah. could, rather wow. than have to find the time to go find her and go meet her, if it was something where I either had a, a database or I had people to, I'm looking for maple syrup recipes, could you send me, you know, the, the link to access all of them? Old, like, Boston hotel menus from the, the 1810s, 1840s, but if that could come to me on demand whenever I wanted it. I'll give you the strategy that I use when I'm traveling anywhere, but let's say you're in New England. I'm in Canaan, New Hampshire for the first time ever. A little small community, Canaan, New Hampshire. And I need to get something to eat. I flag a police officer and I say, where do you eat? What's good and where do you eat? They know. Right over the um, Massachusetts border near Portmouth, there's this uh, lobster shack. We went to that place. It's me and my wife, my two kids. We straight up integrated that place. <laughs> the people were so cool, they were so nice, and the food was delicious. The local people know where good food is. You gotta be willing to go off the main track to find stuff like that, but it's here. There's stories like that all over this region. That's why I just wanna celebrate them. I wanna collect them. I want to, them to be inspiration. These should be documentaries. I mean, when you see that kind of stuff, it does inspire the professional cooks as well as the home cooks is what I'm saying. I live in Quincy. So I eat a lot of Chinese food. 
it's one of the reasons I live in Quincy. If you're interested in traditional New England food, there's two great clam shacks right on Wallison Beach. There you go. The lobster pot right near the Four River Bridge, not very scenic. That's New England food. It's cheaper than when I order Chinese food. I oftentimes overorder. It's not just sitting in a fine dining restaurant. A restaurant opens with a set of goals. If you're hoping to be like somewhat creative, you're trying to charge a certain amount of money to support those goals. That doesn't mean that's the only place you can find a cuisine or a style of food. That you can go eat three Michelin star Chinese food and you're going to pay a ton of money. Or you can go to Taipei Cuisine in Quincy and eat dry pot and pay like eleven fifty and be so full that you might be sick after, but like you just had a spectacular meal. The people who run what are considered the best restaurants in Boston, far and away, are white guys cooking Italian food. Listen, I, I love Italian food. Um, there are a few things I love more, but unless more people get to cook more food and charge more money for it and get more coverage, it's going to keep being, you know, noodles and creamy soup. The chorus of voices probably still looks a lot like what our restaurant community in Boston looked like when Durian Park opened. So I think that there's an opportunity problem. And also the way that we, we think about restaurants and the way we think about paying for food. Will Gilson's recent Globe article, there were multiple comments that just said, serve more food for less money. That's not really how it works. Restaurant owners would love for more diners to understand what happens under the hood. In Washington, D.C., in the African-American community, every Friday, African-American women in lower-income areas, people would know, go to Miss Ann's house and put your order in on Friday morning. Put your order in what? She's frying fish. You go and tell her you want an order, and then you show up at her house between 6 and 8 o'clock, and while she's frying fish, she knows you want an order, and you pay a reasonable price for a great meal. I don't know the traditions here. That's what I'm saying. I'm trying to learn more about them. But I am sure somebody trying to make rent or make their mortgage has done that historically around here. So there's a lot of stuff that you can find about New England food that you don't necessarily need to go to a traditional restaurant. Some of the best eating you'll have, locals will be the only ones to be able to tell you. And when I travel, when I'm thinking about a trip to Africa... I'm not trying to go to a tourist trap. I'm trying to find out somebody local who can tell me and bring me to some of the best food that's there. And that, if you want to find that food, it's there. The other thing, too, nobody's talked about is crack a recipe book and start cooking it yourself. It's not that hard. We hope you enjoyed the panel. And more importantly, that you were motivated to consider what you could contribute to a greater understanding of New England foodways. Perhaps you want to provide the seed money for an organization dedicated to New England Foodways, similar to the affirmation I read to the audience. Maybe you want to present work. Maybe you want to organize a traveling symposium here in the New England area in which we would regularly come together and talk about the region and its food history. Whatever contribution you'd like to make, if you have an ideal, please write me at fdopie at gmail.com and share your point of view. We'd love to hear from you. That's a wrap for this show. Thanks for listening. To hear more content like it, go to fredopi.com. If you have questions about advertising and sponsoring this show, contact us at fdopie at gmail.com. 
That's F-D-O-P-I-E at gmail.com. Write me to speak, teach, and consult at F-D-O-P-I-E at gmail.com. That's F-D-O-P-I-E at gmail.com.